Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. I invite you to turn your scriptures to Luke 7. As we continue our series through Luke There's important context to this story that I think I'll provide for you up front rather than later before we read it, which is in many cultures, there's this thing called hospitality. There is a Southern hospitality. It seems to be a little bit on the wane, Uh, but in many cultures, if you encounter somebody who's a stranger or somebody new or just somebody in your church or on the street or a neighbor, you invite them in and you treat them well. And in each culture, there's particular things that look like a particular form of hospitality. I'll give you an example of this. When I was in India one time, I was eating a meal with a family. I'd been invited into a woman's home. And it was breakfast, and so she was serving me eggs. And so I ate three eggs, and then she put another one on my plate. So I ate four, and she put another one on my plate, and I ate five. Because in my culture, which is kind of from the Midwest, uh, uh, northern culture, uh, you eat what's on your plate. Well, in her culture, if a plate's empty, you put more food on the plate. You can see how this would become a cycle that was very damaging to my cholesterol. After 10 eggs, I finally said, please, please stop putting food on my plate. I can eat nothing else. And then the person who was with me, the woman cooking did not speak English, the person with me who was interpreting for me, uh, he said, uh, we all thought you were going a bit overboard. Uh, perhaps you should stop. As re- I was reminded of this yesterday as I was walking around. Uh, I saw a family that I engaged with who uh, called me over and said, hey, do you want a beer? Just out of nowhere. They, they, they weren't an American family. They were, I think, uh, perhaps an Egyptian family or elsewhere. Just out of nowhere. I was walking in their neighborhood. They didn't know me from Adam. Well, in Jesus' culture, to be invited to somebody's house meant that there would be certain things that would be done, both as a norm, but then certain things that would be done to kind of indicate that you are a special person. One of the things that would be done is that your feet would be washed by a servant. Why is that? Well, in those days, you walked everywhere. Jesus didn't have horses. They would have maybe traveled on donkeys. Oftentimes, the donkeys would just be used to carry the things. They were literally pack animals, and people would walk beside their donkeys. You walked everywhere. And you wore sandals, and the sandals would be open to the dirt and the grime, and so your feet would be disgusting. And so having a servant wash your feet was both an act of kindness, but also a practicable matter because you didn't want your feet to stink as you ate. If you were an honored guest, then you would be anointed or given some sort of oil to put on your head and on your skin. Oil could perhaps be fragranced in those days, or just be some sort of olive oil or other kind of oil, just just to cleanse your skin and freshen you up a little bit. It's kind of like when you walk into the bathroom at my house, there's going to be soap. But if you walk into the bathroom at someone's house who's really good at entertaining, like my mother, there's going to be four soaps and three lotions, and you won't know in which order you're supposed to use any of them. But they're all arrayed before you, and you kind of have to choose what you want to use. Well, at Jesus' day, you'd have your feet washed, and then you'd have your forehead anointed with oil. And so we pick up the story. 
One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. We know from later on the story, this man's name was Simon. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet. Let me pause and explain something. You might think, how could she be standing behind him if he's seated at a table eating a meal? Well, in those days, you didn't actually sit in a chair like we understand a chair. They would have reclined at table. Eating in those days was a very long affair into the evening. And you would lie on your side or on your back on a couch or on the floor with pillows and blankets. And so imagine somebody reclining, not somebody kind of seated as we think of a chair. It'd be very easy for her to be at his feet, to be stooped over his feet as he's reclined at the table. And so she was standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. And anointed them with the ointment that she had brought. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he he said to himself, when we say he said to himself, he wasn't just thinking in his head, he was kind of mumbling. You know how somebody will mumble and grumble when they see something that isn't, well, that isn't right, what are they doing there? If this man were a prophet, he would have known who, what kind of woman this was, who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering Said to him, so Jesus heard the mumbling. And you know, in, in social contexts, you're sitting at a dinner table and somebody said something obnoxious, you have a choice, right? You either confront the obnoxious statement or you ignore it. And being this being the South, frequently we kind of just let it slide, right? Well, Jesus heard the, the grumbling and the rumbling and he looks at him and he says, Simon, let me tell you something. And Simon, you know, on the spot. Okay, go ahead. Say it. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So literally 10 times more than the other one. And when they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I, I suppose, for, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's one of those duh questions. Like Jesus is asking him a question. Simon is kind of picking up on where the answer is going, but he doesn't really want to say it. And he's like, eh, you know, the one that held Ted Moore. You have judged rightly. And then he turns to the woman. Now you remember the woman's at his feet. Nobody has acknowledged this woman's existence. This is really awkward. Okay, let's, let's just reveal how awkward it is. You're sitting at grandma's dinner table. It's Thanksgiving meal. You're carving the turkey, and all of a sudden you look down, and your cousin, who's sitting at the end of the table, has her head back, and there's a lady behind her with some water doing a nice shampooing job, the kind of which you would see at, you know, you go to a Great Clips or whatever, Fantastic Sam's, and she's getting the head massage and the sudsing, and you guys are getting ready to dig into your turkey with cranberry sauce, and she's like, just a little, could you get a little over here too? And then the hair cutting starts, and she gets the scissors out. Awkward. Weird. Not at all usual for this sort of thing to happen. So weird that literally nobody knew what to say. 
Nobody would address the woman because they didn't want to offend Jesus. And nobody would say anything to Jesus because they knew, remember Jesus is into his ministry quite a bit now, that he was smarter than all of them. And anything that they said was only going to make them look like a fool and a sinner and, and, and honor this person, this sinner, this woman. It's just the weirdest situation. And yet what is to come is in my estimation one of the sweetest moments in the ministry of Jesus on earth. It's one that I hope you will mark in your Bibles and in your heads as something that you come back and think about over and over and over again. Because we think of Jesus and we think of the miracles. We think of the demons being cast out. We think of the big moments, feeding 5,000 or, or teaching people on a mountaintop. We think of him walking on water and we think, wow, these are huge moments in the life of Jesus. I tell you the truth that this moment that is to come in the lives of the people that were in the room with him would have shocked them and stuck with them more than even seeing someone have a demon cast out of them. So strange was this moment to come. So gracious so full of wisdom, and yet so acutely cutting towards the Pharisee who asked the question, that it is impossible for us to overlook it. And I encourage you, take this week to meditate just on what happens. He turns to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Now remember, I should have brought a couch with me. He's lying on his side, okay? So he's not standing up. He's lying on his side. He's not seated on his chair. He's lying on his side. Simon's probably across the table from him. That's how you would have chatted, right? You're sitting there picking your grapes and eating them and drinking your wine and having some lamb to eat or whatever. And he says, do you see this woman? And so he's pointing down at his feet. He says, I entered your house. You didn't even give me water to clean my own feet. You, you didn't give me, in the South, I don't know how to make the perfect equivalent of this, except to say, you, you brought me into your house and you didn't give me any sweet tea. <laughs> but she didn't just bring me water. She has used her own tears to wash the grime of the road from my feet. Think about what that would take. She has to be weeping with such profuse tears, bent over these disgusting, stinky, road-weary feet. And her tears are so heavy that it can actually wash the grime away from feet. Have you ever washed a shoe that you'd been walking through mud? You have to scrub it sometimes. You have to get the sides. You have to work. And so profuse, so many are her tears. And we've all had a cry like this, where we just cannot stop because the tears are so thick. And they, we, just, we start to feel that headache and the dryness in our head because our, our tears are just pouring out of us. So profuse are they. The grime mingled with 
the, the, the tears that were dropping from her eyes. And so to clean his feet, she wiped the grime and the tears away with her own hair. Now, I couldn't do that, but those of you that have long hair, just imagine you're over someone's disgusting, grimy feet. You're weeping over them. And for the, for the weeping, for the tears to actually hit his feet, she almost has to have her, her face on his feet. And then to get rid of the grime, she has no cloth, she has no bucket. She takes the length of her own hair and wipes it. You gave me no kiss. When you entered someone's house that was a friend or a family, you would kiss them. This still happens in many cultures today. As a matter of fact, Paul would say, greet one another with a holy kiss when you would come to church. In the Greek and in the Jewish cultures, that was acceptable. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. So you wonder, how did the tears get to his feet? Her lips were on his feet. Just put the moment in your head. You did not anoint my head with oil. You didn't give me any lotion. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Not even oil. Not even like a... a, a, a table olive oil that you could just take and slather on your forehead. You didn't give me that hand pump of the five-gallon Walmart lotion. And yet she has come in with some uh, Gucci scent. You, You wouldn't give me the squirt, and yet she is out here with this vase of expensive perfume, which she worked probably in some illicit trade to earn all this money, and yet here she is pouring it out over my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. The first time that this woman is acknowledged in the entire story is when the Lord of all creation, the King of heaven and earth, and the Savior of all mankind looks at her. And the only words that he says are your sins are forgiven. To this woman, what is her title? What is her name? We don't know. What is the title the Bible gives her? Sinner. To this woman, her identity in that moment changed completely. She went from somebody whose only name was Sinner to now being her only name is Forgiven. What a miracle of grace this is in that moment. Think about the names that we ascribe to people. Drunkard, addict, sinner. I was raised 
In a, in a scenario where everybody was white, so we didn't learn racial epithets like you might have been raised saying, but we, were ta- we t- called people trash or white trash. That's the kind of name that this woman had. Jesus, that's trash. And Jesus looks at her and says, that's treasure. Can you imagine the change in her heart in that moment? What if the worst person that you knew or the person that you saw walking the street that you could judge immediately in your mind and say, that person is filth, that person is trash, that person is a problem, that person is evil, that person should not be in my neighborhood, should not be in my street. Imagine Jesus himself walking up to that person and saying, I love you, I have forgiven everything you have ever done. Enter into my kingdom. You are treasure in my kingdom. That's this moment. It's extraordinary. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who are at the table are going to mutter, right? Like, who who is this? You can't do that. We're Pharisees. To be saved, you got to go to the temple. You got to make sacrifice. You got to read the scriptures. You got to wear your hair a certain way. You got to wear your clothing a certain way. You have to follow the Old Testament rules of ritual and cleanness and cleanness. You have to do what you have to do in order to be saved. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't even answer him. What does he do? He's still looking at the woman. Okay, let's go back to the context. Reclining at the table. The Pharisees are across the table all here. Jesus says, what? Your sins are forgiven. And they all just go, what? You can't do that. Who do you think you are? And Jesus doesn't even look at him. Doesn't even look at him. He keeps looking at the woman and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say, this is a good start. He didn't say, I'm glad that you're here. You've gotten this far in your Christian walk. Let's get you into a discipleship group and maybe we'll really figure out what it means for you to be a Christian. He didn't say, wow, you know, I'm so appreciative of what you've done, but we've got to get to the temple. Let's go this afternoon on the way. You can sell that alabaster jar and you can get yourself a a lamb, a proper lamb, and we'll sacrifice the lamb and we'll sprinkle the blood and then your sins will finally be taken care of. He says, your sins are forgiven. You can go in peace. God's not going to give you any more trouble. You're not a sinner anymore. You know what word would go on to describe believers instead of sinner? Saint. See, in in certain parts of the Christian faith, they have this thing called sainthood. And they reserve it for only particular leaders within the context of the church. Saint meaning a person who has been sanctified by Christ that is made especially holy. That's not what the New Testament teaches. 
that Christians would refer to each other and write letters to each other to the saints at Ephesus, for example, the book to Ephesians starts. That doesn't just mean the leaders, it means all the believers in Jesus Christ who have had their name, sinner, exchanged for a new name and a new identity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. You're sanctified, made holy, and you have peace with God, Paul would write, through the ministry of reconciliation that is in the blood of Christ on the cross. Well, how do we apply this to our lives? This story, this amazing moment. I've said this probably going on 20 weeks in a row now in some form or fashion. But hear me, because in this story, it is particularly relevant. Nobody is too far gone for the grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody. One of my favorite people in this church, I won't embarrass him, is a brother of ours who works with the youth. And, and he, all the time, will share stories. Yeah, back when I was an atheist who hated Jesus and thought the church was stupid. And then I'll share some kind of story, and I'll just look at him like, you? But he wasn't too far gone for the grace of Jesus Christ to grab hold of him when he was driving by this church one day, and he heard God say, go to church, and he went in, and he heard a missionary speaker, and that moment, the grace of Jesus Christ took hold of his soul, and the Holy Spirit grabbed him, and he confessed and repented and believed. There is nobody that you're going to see out there in that world. There's nobody you're going to see in the halls of this church. There's nobody you're going to see at work. There's nobody that you encounter that Jesus cannot save. There's nobody in prison today that is beyond the scope of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. The second thing that I think we need to take from this that's critical is that the more that we recognize our sins, the greater our love. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. You see, this woman who came to Jesus and profusely wept over his feet and washed his feet with her hair and then poured maybe her life savings over his feet in order to just bless him, in order to love him for who he was, knew how bad she was. It is a great tendency when you become a Christian, especially when you become a Christian early on in life, to think, I'm not that bad. Yeah, Jesus died, but for me, he only had to die a little. He didn't have to die a lot. Probably one nail through one wrist would have been enough. But the more that we dig deep into our souls and recognize our own sinfulness, our brokenness, our awfulness, the more that we reveal how bad we are, the greater our love is magnified towards Jesus because the greater we recognize how our sins cost him his life. The greatest moment in a Christian's life 
First is when they're saved. Second is when they first really feel the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. But thirdly, I'm convinced there's a moment in every Christian's life, and hopefully it happens many times over, when they either do something awful or remember something awful that they have done, and they recognize afresh the grand grace of Jesus Christ, how amazing it is, how overwhelming it is, how undeserving we are. We cannot earn even one ounce of Jesus' forgiveness. And the more that we recognize that, the more free we are to love, to love God and to love other people. It's when we think that people should be good that we get messed up. It's when we think that we should be better than we really are that we get angry with ourselves. Or when we think that other people shouldn't be so bad that we get really upset. We see the news and we think those people should know better. We encounter our families and their, and, and their, and their brokenness and their interactions with one another. And we think somebody should have raised you better. Oh wait, those are my children. Somebody else should have raised you better. Y'all, everybody's broken. There is none righteous, not even one, Paul would write. If we think through the practical applications of that, if you have somebody in your life that won't stop sinning, no matter how much you try to help them, no matter how much you try to direct them, no matter how much you pray for them, no matter how much you argue with them, they won't quit doing this thing that they know they shouldn't do. If you pause and remember that it is the tendency of all men to be broken, that each of us sins, each in our own unique ways throughout the course of our lives. If you pause and remember that, you might remember this fact, that God himself, with all his wisdom, could not, through his words, get Cain to stop from murdering his own brother. Did you ever think about that? God shows up to Cain, says, evil is waiting at your door, sin is crouching there, it will overwhelm you. And the very next day, Cain takes his brother out to a field and strikes him dead. If the words of God were not sufficient to stop Cain from committing such evil, why do we think that our words will be any better at stopping evil? No, what evil does, what confronting evil does, is drive us to our knees and pray that God would work. That God would send His Spirit. That God would forgive. That God would do what we know we cannot do. And the same is true in our lives. I can't stop doing this sin, Lord. I'm so angry because I can't control this part of my life. You know what? You can't. But His grace is sufficient even for that. Would you go back to Him on your knees? Well, there's a third thing here that I'll end with. And the third thing actually comes from the end of the previous passage. You remember in the previous passage, or if you weren't here two weeks ago when I preached it, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist had confronted Jesus because Jesus hadn't matched up with their expectations, you see. And so the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist both kind of confronted Jesus in different ways. The, 
John the Baptist's disciples were wondering when he was going to rise up and be the Messiah he was supposed to be. And the Pharisees were kind of implying that he was an awful person uh, because he ate with sinners and, and gluttons and drunkards and he was a friend of all of them. And Jesus' ending verse, uh, at that passage in, in verse 35, it says this, Wisdom is justified by all of her children. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. In other words, Jesus says, listen, you can criticize me all that you want. You can call me a glutton and a drunkard. You can say John is a crazy man who lives in the desert. But you need to look at the fruit of what comes out of what is happening right now in my ministry. If what I'm saying is true, if what I'm preaching is true, then it will be justified by what happens next. If what I'm saying is false, then we will see that revealed as well. And who are the children of wisdom? Well, in the passage right before this one, the child of wisdom is a Greek or Roman centurion soldier who would have been viewed as an occupying force in Galilee. In this passage, the child of wisdom is a sinner unworthy of even having her name printed in Scripture. In the very next passage we're going to read, soon afterwards he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him and also women healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary Magdalene, whom demons had come out of, and Joanna, Harold's household measured, the, the manager of the evil king Herod, the woman who handled his entire household, would follow after Jesus and Susanna and many others who would pave the way for the entire rest of Jesus' ministry on earth. Women would pay the money for Jesus to live and eat and do his work. The children of wisdom were people that in Jesus' context would have been viewed as outsiders, undesirable, not belonging amongst the religious leadership. The children of wisdom. My friends, my prayer for this church is that we would be constantly surprised by the nature of the people who are called by the Holy Spirit of God into salvation. That somebody would walk through the door and all of us would go, What? You? I'll never forget, it's so hard for me to tell this story without crying, so I'll probably cry, deal with it. When I was in Detroit, we visited a, a uh, church. It was a Pentecostal church. And I was there with Campus Crusade, and we were interacting with the minister who was the pastor of this Pentecostal church. And he shared the story of this church because up until the day that the church opened, it was an X-rated theater. And then they came in with a bunch of dumpsters and they cleared out all the garbage and paraphernalia and threw it in the dumpsters. And the next morning they opened up and men who had been coming to the theater were invited into church. When's the show? Oh, it's on now. Come on in, buddy. A few months into that ministry, in the middle of the pastor's sermon, a woman walked 
down the aisles in a white dress. And she went like this. She had been a prostitute who had worked at that theater. And she said, this is what Jesus sees. This is what God sees. I am white. I am pure. I'm clean by the blood of Jesus. Do you know, do you know somebody in your life that needs that? Do you need that? Is your identity a sinner or a saint? Is it trash or is it treasure? Holy God, call us as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to find that which the world would call trash and love them with such intensity that they see the gospel of Jesus Christ at work and they know they are loved and they love in return and their faith would be revealed by that love. And God, call us to be people who are not just about talking the talk, but walk the walk. In this story, Lord God, I'm struck that the only person who didn't speak was that woman. And yet by her actions, by her love for her Savior, she showed her faith in a way that no Pharisee ever could. Lord, would our love be so manifest toward you in the way that we worship you in our tears as we come before you with love and in the way that we love the world, that they would know that Christ is real, that he loves them, that he moves today, that you work today, Lord God. Would they become part of this kingdom of saints into which you have called every one of us? In your name we pray. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And my love go with you in Christ Jesus. Amen.